Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today, moral philosopher and Buddhist scholar Dylan Ahn is back. And I am starting our sixth dialogue of the Know Thyself series, which will explore the practice of meditation. This series will guide the listener through the fundamentals of meditation and the process of gaining self-knowledge. In this episode, we explore the mindfulness of sleep. And sleep is so important. It's just as vital as air and food, but often gets overlooked in our fast-paced culture. Now, I know many of you have probably researched sleep, so I tried to bring a new perspective that maybe you haven't seen before on sleep, as well as introducing new ideas like chronotypes, which I think will be a big thing in the next few years, and maybe using a kiwi or tart cherry to help as a sleep aid, and also some of how we evolved our sleep. Uh, and Dylan brings in a lot of insights from his practice as well. So let's take a moment to reflect on what we do for up to a quarter of our life. Now remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, share our content, leave comments. And of course, reach out to us. We want to know who you are and what you want more of us. <laughs> what would you like more of and what would you like less of? If you want to study with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. If you'd like to see our Instagram page, it's The Painter's Dialectic. Mine is Josh Green Artist. If you'd like to see my website, it's joshgreenart.com. Dylan, it's nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. How are you? Doing good. And I'd like to say at the moment that we're not going to release this now, but at the time we're recording this, we have a thousand listens in about 25 countries, which is wow. unbelievable to me. I never thought I would do this well. <laughs> this has just been kind of my ongoing research project as a as an ultra nerd yeah and if you like listening to us send us something <coughs> tell us something you know let us know hey quit doing this or do more of that that'd be that'd be really helpful or just who you are we have no idea who's listening so it'd be nice yeah. <laughs> this is good news for the both of us coming out of a cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and um it looks like the breath did really well so far so today we're gonna do mindfulness of sleep okay and once again the point of doing this is just to help make people mindful of how they can just do their basic life better right just improve their basic life before you even get to meditation if you have all these things in your way all these kind of errors and and stuff it it's kind of pointless just fix your day first and then go to more you know, advanced types of meditation. Just being mindful throughout the day, being aware of the things we talk about is, I would consider it meditation, just staying on track, pulling your awareness back to what you're trying to focus on and change. I think it's safe to assume that you, the listener, and all the other listeners out there, and probably me and Dylan, are all a bit sleep-deprived and in need of some rest. You know, I think most people today in the current societal system are tired, because it has little respect for rest, it doesn't value rest, or natural cycles, not just the cycle of sleep, 
but menstruation for women and birth and you know, all the normal natural things we go through. We just go well, pull your bootstraps up and, and suck it up and you know harm your body, harm your mental health, whatever. We're going to keep the machine running. We need to recognize that sleep is as vital to our physical, mental, and societal health as anything else. The longest someone has gone on record without sleep is 11 days. You can't survive longer than that. And so one thing to think about is you can survive longer without food than you can without sleep. I just wanted to give a little history to show how our current culture around sleep has developed. So during industrialization, the industrialists began defining time mechanically, right? Employees had to obey clocks and bells that segmented their day and regulated their activities. Punctuality, you know, being on time, began to count. Even for those not conducting business, punctuality became just, you know, important in all parts of life. And a clock-like attributes in a person, especially order and consistent regularity, became middle-class values. So we have this glorification of the machine, of the mechanical, and a degradation of natural cycles. So within the factory during the Industrial Revolution that profoundly altered the ways that we work and our perceptions of time, if you go back to episode 3, and listen to me and Dylan do the history of the studio. You can get caught up on that. But the seasonal nature and irregular hours of farm and craft work were supplanted by a strict regularity of factory work, organized, measured, and paid for in terms of time. A clock controlled by a factory manager's ticketed out the hours and a bell synchronized the days. Workdays were long, often 12 to 15 hours, going well before sunrise and past sundown, breaking the cycle of the circadian rhythm, right? And this also spread to home in the decades before the Civil War in America. The upper and middle class women increasingly stayed at home while their husbands went out to work. Domestic advice manuals, so here we go, the propaganda, the advice manuals and women's magazines urged them to assume a role to shape the social and moral behavior of their families by creating a haven from the outside world and by running a clock-regulated household. Women were urged to practice systematic habits in using time, especially to maintain regular meal times in order to assure the well-being of families and, by extension, the nation. This was also done at school. And if you go back to me and Dylan's episodes on education, uh, that'll make more sense. But in the 1880s, here in America, white children were attending free public elementary schools, and the ringing bell often called them to class. The classroom clock organized their lessons. Among the first things, they learned how to read the clock dial and they had strictly enforced schedules instilled time discipline intended to preserve social order and moral values and students were punished for tardiness and awarded certificates for punctuality right so time was also central at specialized schools to this is a quote here civilize non-white children and americanize adult immigrants 
Another important thing is that people began working on the holy days of rest, right? Like Sunday. So all this rest, you know, we're, we're forcing something organic into these mechanical, rigid, consistent schedules, and that's not the way people worked. This was designed, you know, a powerful cultural shift designed by business owners and politicians who create the systems that we flow through that has led to our culture today. All this stuff still affects us today. I think that's obvious. And we now carry our clock and our segmented calendar in our pocket, and notifications and alarms have replaced the factory bell. And I'm sure, like most of us, we wake up to the sound of an alarm, and this is an extension of the factory bell now into our bedroom, right? All memories of any other way of being have long been forgotten, and the society has been successfully mechanized and our natural internal cycles denied. Many of us work long days in impossible schedules. So now I'd like to give some evidence for my claim on the importance of sleep. So what happens if you stay awake for 24 hours? This is very normal for someone like Dylan, who's in university. I'm sure he pulls all-nighters all the time. I definitely did. It's just a part of normal culture. So if you stay awake for 24 hours, scientists claim it is equal effects to having a blood alcohol level of 0.1, right? So 0.08 is the legal driving limit in the States. So after staying awake for 24 hours, you'll have drowsiness, irritability, impaired decision-making, impaired judgment, altered perception, memory deficits, vision and hearing impairments, decreased hand-eye coordination, increased muscle tension, tremors, increased risks of accidents, and near misses. And somehow we think that this is a great way to prepare for an important exam or anything else. It's by, you know... <laughs> doing this to ourselves. Now, if you stay awake for 36 hours, what happens to the body? Well, your sleep-wake cycle, right, your circadian rhythm, regulates the release of certain hormones, including cortisol, insulin, and human growth hormone. As a result, going without sleep for an extended period of time can alter several body functions like appetite, metabolism, temperature, mood, stress level, so if you go without sleep for 36 hours, you will have extreme fatigue, hormonal imbalances, decreased motivation, risky decisions, inflexible reasoning, decreased attention, speech impairments, as, such as like poor word choice and intonation. Okay. And at this point, you will start doing micro sleeps throughout the day. You'll sleep in 30 second intervals that you'll drop into a sleep and come out. You'll be extremely disoriented. After 48 hours, your immune system stops functioning correctly. And this is what prevents you from illnesses, developing illnesses, and most importantly, the natural killer cell or NK cells stops responding to immediate threats to your health, such as viruses and bacteria. So you start getting sick. And at 72 hours, most people can't go past this. You know, it's kind of the barrier. But there are other types of sleep deprivation. Most of us aren't doing that. But sleep deprivation on a more regular terms, you know, disrupting your sleep regularly like most Americans do. CDC claims that 30% of American adults suffer from sleep deprivation. 
it's an ongoing thing. So what happens if you have disrupted sleep? Well, you'll develop anxiety, unstable mood, drowsiness, forgetfulness, difficulty concentrating, difficulty staying alert, cognitive impairments, decreased performance at work or school, increased risk of illness and injury. And in the long term, you may develop high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and mental illness. Right? Those are the facts. Nature has been around for several billion years, and it has not figured out a way to evolve out sleep. Sleep is essential for every being. And it's safe to claim that most mental disorders also come along with abnormal sleep. And another important thing to note is that quality REM sleep, getting quality REM sleep, was the best predictor of human longevity. So now that I've pointed out those facts, what am I even talking about? What does it mean to sleep? So throughout your time of sleep, your brain will cycle repeatedly through two different types of sleep. There's REM sleep, meaning rapid eye movement, and non-REM sleep. Okay, so the first part of the cycle, non-REM sleep, is composed of four stages. The first stage is you go from awake to falling asleep. The second is you have light sleep and your heart rate slows down, your breathing becomes rhythmic, and your body temperature drops. And then the third, we drop into deep sleep, non-REM sleep. This is delta sleep, right? Delta. And in delta, your body is healing. And then in the fourth stage, we raise up and we go into REM sleep, and this is where you're dreaming. So this cycle, depending on the person, is about 90 minutes to 110 minutes, and it repeats throughout the night. And it is not uncommon to wake up in between these cycles. You may just not remember them. And it's also normal to wake up for a period of time. Actually, before industrialization, people used to wake up and have two sleeps. They had first sleep and second sleep. So if you do that, it's nothing to worry about. It's completely natural. So in non-REM sleep, the body is repairing itself, sending out all the chemicals and hormones and healing muscles. And during your first cycle, that is the longest period is delta. And then as the cycles go on through the night, you have four to six of those cycles, depending on how old you are. As those progress, you'll have greater and greater periods of REM sleep. And so what's the importance of REM? Well, REM, according to sleep scientists, is like a natural mental therapy session. You'll have intense emotions about problems concerning your day and people in the day. And experiencing these emotions will help you to beggar, better regulate your emotions throughout the day and to stay sane. Also important to note about REM is that's when a huge dump of human growth hormone is released. This is why it's linked to the longevity. So if you happen to wake up, if you decide to wake up very early in the morning, you know, to catch a flight, like you wake up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., you may be cutting into your REM sleep period, which would be, you know, affecting your mental health and your, your human growth hormone release. So not all the sleep is equal. They're both, every part of sleep is essential, right? But as you disrupt the sleep, you'll be disrupting those certain patterns. Now we can talk about some interesting things. So if you live in a stressful environment, this is important to note. And I've had these experiences. So, so what, during REM sleep, 
the brainwave activity looks just like someone awake, right? And so your body has to paralyze itself. Your motor cortex, the part of your brain that moves your body, is very active. And so we descend from monkeys and, and apes that slept in trees. And you can imagine if they start dreaming and moving around, you're going to fall off that branch and, and die. So we developed this mechanism to paralyze ourselves. We also slept in trees because to stay away from big predators like cats and bears and whatnot, and also from bugs that had diseases. And most apes sleep in a 10 to 15 hour cycle at night, right? So actually humans sleep very little compared to other animals. An interesting thing is, you know, once we have the ancestor, the hominid Homo erectus, they believe that that was the first one to have fire and the first one to sleep on the ground because it had fire. And this is when our sleep, our biological sleep, began changing a lot. This is when we began to dream more. And this may have allowed us to form more complex social structures. Most, we're, we dream more out of, out of any animal that we know, right? And as we've seen that, REM's involved with um, social relationships. If you mess up your REM sleep, your ability to have empathy drops, right? And that will affect all of your relationships with your partner, with your family, with your work, you know. So fire played a big role. Another important thing to know is most animals sleep hemispherically. So the brain has these two hemispheres. Uh, most mammals and birds will sleep in one hemisphere at a time. And this is to watch out for predators. This is really cool about flocks of birds. Okay, so flock of birds on the ground. The birds in the center sleep in both hemispheres, but the birds on the outside sleep in one hemisphere at a time. So if the left hemisphere is active, they see through the right eye, and so that right eye will be pointing out from the flock to look for predators. And then as they get sleep in that hemisphere, they switch the other one and turn around. Isn't that incredible? So humans can also do this. Humans who grow up in very um, violent uh, worlds, you know, very stressful worlds, uh, will sleep not as hemispherically as most animals, but they, they do. They're kind of awake through the night. So if you're in a very stressful environment, you have very disrupted sleep. And you may also have sleep if you disrupted sleep if you go to new environments continuously. You may sleep hemispherically. Um, another important thing to note is that there's a difference, you know, people try to fix their sleep problems through sedation, right? Through alcohol, THC, weed, or sleeping pills. But this does not equal sleep. You're just putting yourself under. You do not engage in the normal sleep cycle. So it's a temporary fix, right? Alcohol, even a wine glass before bed greatly disrupted sleep, just a tiny amount, greatly disrupted sleep, and especially the REM cycle, your ability to regulate emotions and repair your body, all the human growth. THC did the same thing. People who smoke a lot of weed do not dream. And we usually when they quit, they have a huge rebound of dreams, right? And this negatively affects their health and their ability to form social bonds and regulate their emotions. Sleeping pills did the same. Uh, what about melatonin? 
Melatonin is released by the pineal gland to say that it's time to go to bed, but it does not do anything to make you go to bed. It is completely ineffective. A lot of studies have shown that it just has very good branding. <laughs> and actually, by taking a lot of it, you're, you're stopping your pineal gland from creating it. Uh, tryptophan is another popular one, which is made out of serotonin. Extremely harmful. Don't do it. So here is some stuff you probably never heard of, all right, that has some promising lab results, but it's not conclusive yet. So experiment with these. I want to experiment with them. So there is some research behind this. So a glass of sugar-free tart cherry juice has been shown to improve sleep. Another one is eating a kiwi with the skin on has also been shown to improve sleep. None of those mess you up biochemically at all, right? So I'd like to try those. So now let's move on. So that's kind of the structure of sleep, but there's other mechanisms involved, the circadian rhythm and sleep drive. <laughs> so let's talk about sleep drive because most people are fighting this and they don't know what it is. So there is a neurotransmitter called adenosine. Adenosine, once you wake up, begins being released in your body and it's the feeling of being tired right this adenosine is released throughout the day and it builds up and builds up and builds up into your brain until you have to go to sleep and during sleep it gets cleared out it gets broken down your body craves sleep because of this like a hunger for food right and this desire is building up to a certain point where you can't stay awake any longer okay so how do people deal with this? It's called coffee. Coffee, caffeine, and all of its many forms blocks adenosine from its receptor. Okay, so coffee adds no energy to the body. It just blocks your ability to feel tired. And actually, by blocking that receptor, it builds up even more in your brain. So as soon as that coffee breaks down, you have a wave of tiredness that's more extreme than the natural. So the half-life of coffee, when caffeine will break down, the half-life of caffeine, it's 10 to 8 hours. So if you drink coffee throughout the day, you're disrupting your sleep very, very much. If you drink coffee before bed, that's very disruptive to your sleep. Even though you feel like you're getting good sleep, it's not the case. So you shouldn't really drink coffee before 10 hours of going to sleep. That was really good. I didn't know that. And I drink a lot of coffee. So let's move on. Okay. So that is the sleep drive run by adenosine blocked by coffee. <laughs> so the circadian rhythm. So circadian comes from Latin. So let's do the etymology like I always do. Circa means to go around or about. Dies means day, right? Around the day. So, <clears throat> the circadian clock, the circadian oscillator, the internal alarm, is a biochemical clock that cycles, it's very stable, and is synchronized with solar time, with the light that's present, right? So, it runs on a 24-hour cycle, and it synchronizes up to every part of your biochemistry. It tells cells when to metabolize, 
all kinds of important things. And it's completely separate from the sleep drive. Now, here's something interesting and new I found that I think will be big in the next couple of years. It's called chronotype. So everyone's circadian rhythm is not the same. You have genetically a chronotype, a time when your circadian rhythm starts. So chronotype is determined by the phase of our circadian rhythm, a biological clock, and our sensitivity to external cues. It impacts our levels of alertness and motivation throughout the day, including you know, our peak physical performance, hunger, and so on, stress level, blood pressure. Okay, so when people say, are you a morning person or a night person, or a lark or a night owl, they're talking about this. And so here's where industrialization really messes up. So there are people who are genetically hardwired to wake up later in the day. And they're currently forcing themselves to wake up early. And by doing this, by having a whole society that's kind of gaslighting them, they are um, going to develop diseases and mental health problems. And that's been shown that people wake up in the, in the these evening people develop diseases and mental health problems way more often than morning persons. They gave them these really dumb names, okay? So there's four types. We have the lions. I can see them thinking this is real exciting. So 15% of people are lions. They want to wake up at 5 a.m. They're most productive 8 to 12, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., and go to bed at 9 p.m. Okay, that only makes up 15% of people, but everyone wants to be that. All right, and then we have the bears. So the bears make up 55% of the population. So the bears will want to wake up at 7 a.m. They are most productive from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and they want to sleep at 11. Then there's the wolves, <laughs> which are believed to make up 15% of the population. They wake up at 9 a.m., they're most productive 1 to 5, and they want to go to sleep at 12 a.m. So I did a test. You can take these tests online to see what chronotype you are. That was mine. So I'm one of the people being gaslit. <laughs> More likely to develop disease and mental health problems, which I have. All right, and then the worst one you can be in artist society is the dolphin. The dolphins, oh no, no, maybe mine was the worst. No, so the dolphins make up 10% of people. They want to wake up at 6 a.m. They're most productive at 3 p.m. to 7 p.m., and they want to go to bed at 11. So those are the chronotypes. So it's important to know your chronotype and to try to make your life align with when you want to naturally wake up. And if you do that, you can get your, your sleep drive in correlation with your circadian rhythm and have good sleep. Now, if you have insomnia, none of this really applies. So you need to go to, a, to a, a clinical practitioner and figure out what the problem is. There's so many things that can cause it. Those are the facts. I will shut up now and... Dylan can tell us some fascinating Buddhist history or whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> <laughs>
one extra fact, I think it's also been shown in studies that people who work night shifts have more health problems. Yeah. So people who work sort of the, the midnight hours, who work the night shifts, usually have a worse time when it comes to cardiovascular, like heart problems and things like that. But I don't know if that is just because they're working night hours or because of the fact that most of society works in the morning. And so it's a little bit harder for people who work night shifts to get proper sleep. Right? It means that they'll have to make special arrangements, you know. They'll have to, you know, I can imagine there's a lot of practical problems with when do you do your shopping if you have the night shift? Right? Or things like that, or chores, like when you get that around, right? You need some point in your life you need to go to bed. But it makes it more difficult if it's like it's daylight out and you're just working against <coughs> your biology, in a sense. Um, I, I will say that luckily, and I, I sort of, and this is partially by design, partially by my biological incompetence, is that even since high school, I've never pulled an all-nighter. <laughs> I'm just incapable of doing it, right? I'm just so This sort is of, my theory. D just... Dylan's a perfect being. Somehow he has all this knowledge. And he only eats one meal a day, too. He's just a perfect being. I don't understand Dylan. So it's not, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's more that I, I can't do it, right? It, once it gets to about, at worst, when it gets to 10 or 11, my mind just goes, okay, I can't do this anymore. Whatever it is, right, I'm dropping and I'm going to bed. <laughs> and so um, even in high school, when we used to have like really long days comparatively, right? We wake up at six and our classes start at eight and then we finish off at three. Um, I would sort of have to compensate either by, you know, having a nap afterwards and things like that. I try to get um, enough sleep. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. But I've never sort of done the thing that others have done, which is like the, the Monster Energy Gym Red Bull All Nighter. It just doesn't work for me. I find that I do it, I, if I were to do it, it'd probably be worse um, overall. So even in university, I've tried to avoid um, doing that. Uh, just because I can't, <laughs> I just can't do it. Um, also, interesting, I didn't know about the, the chronotypes, um, but I go to bed usually, I, I start preparing, and I'll talk a lot up uh, a little bit more about this in a moment, for bed at around eight. And so I aim to sleep by nine, by that means at eight, I'm done with anything, right? My work is finished, messages, any social, my thinking is all done. And then the eight o'clock is when I begin my routine. As you mentioned, like you, it's not like you can just go into bed and just fall asleep. You have, you know, you have a routine and it helps to let your body know that, okay, now I'm beginning the preparation for bed. Um, so a few helpful things, as you mentioned, right? Being off stimulants, right? So not having sort of caffeine, tea, not having very stimulating, not watching a very stimulating movie or video or thinking about something very deeply, uh, having a very stimulating conversation. You, be, you, know, you begin to brush your teeth or whatever your nightly routine is. You start, start to dim the lights. Uh, maybe, I think you mentioned before, you do sort of a breathing meditation exercise just to relax, um, slow your breathing down. So just to kickstart the entire process, I find is very helpful. I think only... People who are really, really tired can just go like snap their fingers and immediately fall asleep. I think <clears throat> most people need some sort of routine to sort of get into it, to make it easier. And I think most people um, who recognize the fact they don't have enough hours of sleep 
often pushed too hard, right? It becomes almost a pressure to sleep. Like, I have to sleep. I have to do it now. And actually, that has an effect of making it too much of too much of a stressful experience to be, right? To be uh, a, a, a well-rested evening. So I will say that I think it's worth pointing out that there's a difference between sleep and rest. And so we use it synonymously most of the time. But as you've mentioned with the influence of, uh, of routine, with the influence of drugs, with the influence of stimulants, right? Rest does not mean sleep anymore, right? It probably used to when our lives were a lot more simpler, but nowadays we can get a lot of sleep, but not a lot of rest. We can have a very disturbed night's sleep. Um, so one mention of sleep that happens uh, in Buddhist texts is that the Buddha describes an individual who sort of goes to bed thinking of everything that they're going to do tomorrow and being anxious and worried about It's like a, a chimney that is fuming, right? There's this continuously burning thing that you're, you just can't stop. And so that's not helpful for a good night's sleep because you're giving yourself a lot of anxiety and stress. Where you're planning, you're doing a lot of conceptual relative thinking, critical thinking, reflection before you go to bed. That is not ingredients for rest. Those are ingredients for activity. So that makes life a bit harder when going to bed. So Similarly, the advice is that if you want to have a restful sleep, it's good to be able to. Of, of course, I can understand that most people probably find it difficult to resist thinking about tomorrow and anxieties and what's going to happen. But it would be a good thing to sort of put that aside and just to have a cutoff point, like having a, a designated hours like after this point, I'm done with work planning, whatever happens tomorrow, right? Do the planning beforehand, but don't do it before bed, right? When you're, you know, about to go to sleep, not the best time to start worrying about what's going to happen and what your plans are, what's your schedule, because that's going to make it a bit more difficult. The other thing that people sort of underestimate is, of course, diet. And it's not just caffeine, um, and it's not just alcohol, but also your diet in general. So if you have a high sugar, high fat, or <clears throat> if you eat a lot before going to bed, you're gonna have a harder time <clears throat> getting a restful amount of sleep because your, your stomach is still working hard, it's still digesting, right? Or you might need to go to the bathroom and things like that. Um, so in which case, <clears throat> I think the advice is that try to avoid eating anything too filling or too fatty or too high sugar um, for a significant amount of time before bed. And so that works out <clears throat> for me because I try and adapt my lifestyle to the Buddhist lifestyle and they sort of cut off eating after lunch, right? So they give themselves plenty of time uh, to digest, to get all of that done before going to bed. But take that with a pinch of salt because that only works <clears throat> if you're simultaneously going to bed early. Right, so I go to bed, I start preparing for bed at 8. So if you prepare for bed at 10, I can totally understand why eating once a day won't work. Because your middle of the day is very, very different <clears throat> qualitatively to mine. Right, My day begins at 5, right, 5 a.m., and I go to bed at 8. So my middle of the day, for you, might be sort of just the beginning of the day. right? So everybody's sort of rhythm. Oh, you're a and lion, everybody's... Dylan. You're a lion. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> not by choice. That's sort of how it worked out. Um, so I think it's good to find something that works for you, right? The appropriate amount of risk that works for you. And I think you're right in pointing out that society is not very accommodating because we live in a world that functions of reliability, right? We want consistent results. And so we want everybody in at the same time, doing things at the same time and clocking off at the same time. So it's easier to control, but we don't work like that. So you have to find a way that does work for you. You're also right to mention that in the past, that rhythm wasn't decided by us. It was decided mainly by nature. So if you have longer days, right, during the summer, you will sleep less because there, the sun's still out. It, has, it isn't nighttime yet, right? So you want to get a lot more things done, right? Either you're hunting, foraging, or you're farming and so on and so forth. In the winter times where the sun sets at like four in the afternoon, right? What else is there to do but go to bed? Right? So not only is the rhythm not something that is particular to an individual, it is also not something that is particular to, uh, it is not something that is the same throughout the entire year. It's seasonal, right? It is adjusting to time, it is adjusting to when the sun comes, adjusting to weather, pressure, humidity, temperature. And so that is something that is also neglected. Uh, the fact that during the winter months, productivity is probably going to be low, right? And to make people come in, as you say, eight, nine in the morning, right? That is just depressing. <laughs> <laughs> the sun's not out, especially in London, right? No sun, cloudy, rainy days, right? You're obviously not going to be in the best of spirits in the morning. And making people do that sort of explains why the reliance on caffeine. I couldn't imagine how it, you know, how people could survive without caffeine if that's sort of the situation they're dealing with. Um, of course, there are adjustments that can be made, right? Caffeine can be helpful. So I personally, I drink tea if I have a class to teach, right? If I'm driving for long hours, I use caffeine as a tool. But I'm also mindful of the fact that I can't make caffeine a routine, otherwise it won't work. I don't want to have caffeine be something that I can't function without. I want caffeine to be still useful when I need it. I need the kick. Because if caffeine stops giving you the kick and it becomes like something you need to be normal, then what do you do when you actually need <laughs> the extra sort of kick for when you work? Um, then you lose out on a tool. And even worse is that if you don't have it, you feel awful. Right? You feel absolutely miserable. And so again, you can see that it's not a personal choice issue. It's not even just a biological issue. It's a socio-cultural and economic issue as well. All to make these things in a make these things not work out for us, sleep-wise and rest-wise. A lot of phones before bed, a lot of screens before bed, also doesn't help either. And so I think it's important to say that it's not like you have to overhaul your entire routine in a day, but it's worth noting sort of daily habit things you do that have an influence over sleep. And to note that once those thing, little things pile up throughout the day, once those little habitual things pile up through the day, they do end up having a significant effect on your sleep. So change is very, very difficult and very, very difficult to do in a day. But Begin first by, as you say, being mindful, being aware of noting the fact, of understanding, as you say, the facts of this. What is the information? 
and then reflecting, oh, what am I doing in my daily life that has an influence on sleep? You don't have to perfect all of your habits, but changing maybe a third is enough, right, to make your sleep better. It's not like you have to give up screens before bed, but if you are going to have screens before bed, it means you might have to adjust something else. If you simultaneously have screens, alcohol, caffeine, formula before <laughs> bed, that's going to pile up, right? So if you remove half of them, you're already looking at much better rest. Some things are beyond our control, and it's some things that we have to accept, but it's worth noting and understanding that, okay, if I work a night shift, and it's for economic reasons, that is something that is, I can't choose, right? It's not like I have the luxury of choosing not to have it, in which case it's still important to note that that is happening and to prepare. So you might have to adjust different aspects of your lifestyle to compensate for the fact that you work a night shift, including that you might have to look into getting in some extra exercise, having a nap somewhere, or eating healthier, right? You need to try and adjust different aspects to make the parts that you can't choose work. And so we have a very limited amount of freedom in the world, right? Because of our jobs, our careers, our livelihoods. And so you try and wrestle back as much freedom as you can and make the choices that you can there. In Buddhism, sleep is often considered to be an obstacle to practice. And for the monks, that is certainly the case. And so sleep understood here is not necessarily rest. Sleep here is the desire for more than you need. So you're looking at people when the Buddha says that people should sleep, let he's looking at people who sleep more than they need, right? They already have a full night's sleep, but during the day they have nothing to do, so they go and take an extra nap, they lounge about, they don't you know, do anything productive. That's the sort of sleep the Buddha sort of speaks against. What he doesn't speak against is rest. And the monk's lifestyle, the reason that they could sleep four hours a day, is that their life may be significantly um, less sleep orientated, but they're certainly getting a lot of rest because they meditate a lot throughout the day. Their breathing is calmer, right? They're focusing on their breathing. In general, they're having less activity, less energy expended, right? And more restful mindfulness. And so they can live a lifestyle with only four hours sleep. We can't, right? We live too full of a life to be able to have that sort of lifestyle. So again, it's taking into the context and the pinch of salt. The Buddha isn't against rest. He's against having had enough rest, but still enjoying sort of sleeping about and not doing anything productive. That's the sort of thing. That's very different from actually needing the rest. But we can learn something from that, and we can take away from that that rest is also dependent on your activity throughout the day. So if you have a slower day, it means that you don't need that much rest. If you have a full activity packed day, that means you need more rest, you'll have to take a nap. So often, if I have a busy day, and I often do a meditation session in the evening at around five, uh, if I don't take a nap, I'll doze off, right? If I've been teaching, if I've been working, I've been marking essays, if I calm down all of a sudden, my body thinks, okay, bedtime, <laughs> right? So you need to adjust. Right? It's not always a one-size-fits-all. You have to find ways around it. And so if you know that you're going to nap, that it means not having caffeine beforehand because that nap is not going to go well. You won't be able to make up for rest in that way. So I think sleep and rest is sort of interlinked 
with all of the other aspects of our lifestyle, our schedule, our diets, what we, our habits, what we plan to do, you know, what we choose to pay attention on. Um, and again, it's adjustable to routine. I think in the past, people have had habits of reading before bed. I can't do it because if I'm getting ready, if I read, I can't even make sense of the words anymore. <laughs> My brain just sort of just, just reads, but doesn't take anything in. But for people who have that work for them, that actually the part of their sleeping routine is getting through maybe five to 10 pages of a book, and that actually sets them off. If that works for you and that gets you rest, do it. Right? It's not a definitive thing saying that anything stimulating is bound not to work. It's just saying that more often than not, they don't work. But if it works for you in particular, yeah, do it. I'm not sure about the cherry and kiwi thing, because I think that the cherry thing is very tart. And I, I think you, that then you have to make an adjustment, I think, with the dentists, or the dentists say, well, before bed, you probably shouldn't have anything too acidic. Because, <laughs> you know, you've just brushed your teeth, and that's the idea. Or the kiwi, again, is very, very acid heavy, right? So the dentist will have an issue with you, but maybe it works. Maybe you have to take, you know, way up your, maybe you have fantastic teeth <laughs> and really poor rest, in which case you can balance things out. I'm going to try it. Um, <clears throat> The kiwi with the skin thing sounds to me quite quite hard to do, wouldn't it? Because it's quite a hairy. Yeah, because the, the kiwi skin will mess up yeah. your tongue. So I don't know if they like grind mm. it up or blend it or something, but there's a chemical <coughs> in the, uh, mm. the skin that's important mm. to promoting sleep. Um, I want to mention two other things I forgot about, but I just remembered, mm. and they go along with what you're saying. So these are just some... Um, uh, non-chemical ways to promote sleep mm -hmm. that have been very, very effective in the lab. So one is cathartic journaling, right? So Dylan was talking about having all these worries before you go to bed. I think all of us experienced that. People will do a cathartic journaling one hour before they plan to go to sleep, not before they go to sleep, one hour before. And they'll mm -hmm. go through and they'll have all the emotions of the day, all the stresses of the day, and write it out. And that clears the mind so you can go to sleep. Another one, this was actual study. This sounds so dumb. Is counting sheep effective? Well, they found <laughs> no, it's not. But actually, here's a practice you can do. And actually, they do this in the Western esoteric community. Is visualize your, yourself walking down a beach or through a forest. Um, in the esoteric tradition, they, they will... Um, Imagine something, you know, that is so full of love and happiness, really positive emotions. I think that what they're doing in the lab is similar. They'll simulate a space that's very relaxing, peaceful, nice emotions, and then they'll drift off to sleep. Um, that was also shown to be incredibly effective. And then I want to say a really crazy thing. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, this is all regulated by the penile gland, which is a really interesting gland. There's a lot of controversy around it and, and woo-woo and stuff. But it is a very fascinating uh, thing. It's the only part of your brain that isn't split. You know, it's not hemispherical. It sits in between both. And it releases um, melatonin, like we said, but it also releases DMT, right? The, the very powerful hallucinogen. But the cool thing about the evolution of it is it used to be an actual eye on the top of the head of, of lizards. 
So they would have an actual hole on their head. They still have this, that light would go in. And that's how they track their circadian rhythm. They'll see this hole on their head, right? Probably also to see if a eagle or a pterodactyl or whatever was going to like rip them off the ground. Birds have it because their skulls are translucent. They can still see through their skull using the pineal gland. But in humans, we get it directly wired from our eyes. You know, our, our heads are way too thick. We said in the blue episode that blue light is what triggers it. But I just thought that was a cool thing that it was an actual eye. You know, maybe that ties into the third eye mythology or whatever. But it, it used to be an actual eye and it runs the circadian rhythm. I don't know. But I'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing is, is that I think you mentioned something that was quite useful that sleep, a good night's sleep is sort of usually associated with feelings of calm and security. Yeah. You can't really have a good night's sleep if you're anxious or worried or afraid and fearful, yeah. right? Those are the things that get your adrenaline going. So you want to, if you want to visualize, create an environment that has that sort of <clears throat> effect, the better. I think people have mentioned that having a heavier blanket contributes to the idea of being more secure. Yeah. Um, a, a, what is it? Like a weighted blanket. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they call them. Um, people have advocated for either completely blacking out your room, right? Um, or setting the thermostat lower to artificially sort of cool you down yeah. before going to bed. Uh, I find that actually, for me, because I'm a morning person, not having the blinds down helps because it gets darker quite quickly, especially during winter. But in the morning, actually having the sun is great, right? Being able to have a bit of sunlight, especially as rare as it is in the UK, it's quite helpful. And that goes back to the idea that we used to be regulated by sunshine, right? By the Mm -hmm. light. Um, Something you mentioned about the mechanics of time, and this isn't necessarily related to sleep anymore, but just about rhythms in time. Um, Chinese cultures used to regulate seasons in time with a very interesting method. So they would put different lengths of uh, tubes, I think they were made out of wood or bamboo or something, in the ground. And when there's a particular change in the season or change in temperature and change in pressure, different lengths of tubes will start singing effectively as the air passes through them. So they have this idea that the earth breathes, so there's circulation Mm. through the earth. And as the air passes through them, different lengths of tubes will, will sing. And they would used to record that depending on, you know, if this particular tube sings, then they will know, oh, this is the the time of the season. And so they've got 24 tubes, and depending on what time of the season, because they had no calendars or watches or something, that was how they could tell. And most <laughs> of it is not nothing to do with numerology or anything yeah. of that stuff. It's more to do with when do I farm? Like when do I decide to put the seeds in? When do I harvest? When should I prepare for winter? And so that's how they understand time and rhythm. And so I find that quite fascinating, this, this idea huh. that our rhythms used to be decided by nature, but we've sort of tried to mechanically decide for ourselves what our rhythms should be yeah. and trying to keep natural rhythms as far away as possible. <laughs> and we don't want to look at it anymore, right? Um, you know, another so interesting, interesting one is yeah. the, the moon. So mm. apparently uh, moonlight at a full moon disrupts sleep 
and it's shown that a lot of crazy any <coughs> anyone who works in a hospital knows that shit gets crazy on a full moon. So the the moonlight keeps people awake at night. I I wear an eye mask because you know it's a city, it's bright all the time. And my eye mask usually falls off my face by morning. So that solves the problem you were talking about. But I'll wear it to go to sleep and then it falls off by morning so I can wake up. But um what what were those tubes called? What are yeah, they just it would just stick tubes in the ground. They would wait. What are they called though? I want to look it up. Um, I mean, you can you can look up that the basically the the calendar lunar calendar is divided into twenty four mm-hmm. sort of periods. So they have the four seasons, but those are further divided into twenty four. Uh, we call them qi jie. So mm-hmm. uh, divisions of of literal air, divisions of air is what divisions they used to call air. them. Okay. And so that was how they track sort of changes, significant changes in temperature. So when a time of the season comes, they can know that on, on significant days, and there used to be a more consistent cycle to this, that uh, when it reaches a particular time of, uh, of, of the lunar calendar, right, this is when it starts getting properly cold. Or it's actually quite good at tracking the coldest day of the year. Hmm or the hottest day of the year. Usually it's to track those cycles to know and to remind the farmers, okay, this is the last chance that you get to, you know, harvest, this is the last chance to get to plant. Um, and old farmers, so we have multiple, we call it the lunar calendar, which is based off the moon. But actually, uh, in Chinese culture, they used to have multiple calendars. So there's the lunar calendar, there is the calendar based on the sun cycle, and then there's the calendar based on uh, the farmer cycle, and there's the calendar based off of uh, the the king, uh, or nor to do with feng shui and numerology. So there are four different calendars in uh, ancient Chinese culture, and depending on what your line of work is, you will you know decide which calendar to use. If you're a farmer, you use the farmer exclusive calendar, right? If you uh, if your work is mainly based off the cycle of monthly periods, then you will follow the moon. But if you follow the sun, that would be a different calendar as well. Mm. Um, but you're right. Like In a lot of cultures, the moon plays a very significant part in time because it is, it's a longer version, if you'd like, of the sun. Right? The sun tells you the length of a day. The moon tells you a length of the month. So even the Chinese for month is, is the word for moon. So we call a month a moon, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that is the same as well when we say a month. Yeah, it is. Right? Or Monday, right? Yeah. It's based off of the, of the etymology of, of, of the moon. So it plays a significant aspect of timing things. Biology as well, as you mentioned, right? For people who have periods, right? The moon is supposedly to have an effect on, on, on people's cycles. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I imagine in the past... Sensitivity to the moon is also due to the increased light source, right? If you mm-hmm. have a full bright moon, then suddenly you have a much increased light source than any other time of the month, which means that either you get to get more done or it actually could mean that it's more dangerous or whatever. But yeah, it's a fascinating thing how people used to measure time and how time didn't used to be something that was so regulated by the second. We don't. Have, we didn't used to have like an SI unit, a mechanical unit of time. Used to be more based on what the weather and what the what nature is doing, and we should adapt mm-hmm. to how nature operates. But 
nowadays we are more in the they say that this era is the anthropocene right <laughs> it is the era where human activity has an effect on nature right so it is the anthropocene era of of human beings it's fun to imagine you know um you know we could have went so many ways imagine imagine the calendar if it was created by women in the work cycle right mm. It would have been based on the menstruation. We may have a three-week work month or something like that. Mm. Depending on what you track, you know, today we're tracking mas- machines and the economy. That's what we're basing our mm. life on. We're completely divorced from uh, nature, right? And natural mm. cycles and completely ignoring what the body needs. We get our water packaged in plastic. Our food is processed. In fact, nothing. There's nothing natural about how we live anymore. Mm-hmm. Even human. Re- Even the Gregorian calendar yeah. is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it makes sense. I mean, you'd have to track the things in the sky and and, and what's going on in order to construct a society, right? To uh, to know what's going to happen. And imagine the power of someone who understood those cycles back then. They would have been like a wizard or whatever. You know, they knew they yeah. knew what was going to happen next. <clears throat> it's going to snow in a few months. How do you know that, you know? Also, it sort of helped in avoiding superstition, right? So people mm-hmm. who were astronomers in the past, those who knew that the movements of the stars had cycles, weren't afraid of things like eclipses. But for people who didn't understand these were movements and there were cycles, might have genuinely thought that that meant the end of the world was going to happen or the gods were angry, right? (laughs) But they didn't know that actually this is something that happens all the time. (laughs) And there's a cycle, like there is a rhythm to these things and they will happen regardless of whether you've been a good person or a bad person. These are cycles of the stars they're not going to care whether you know your particular harvest has been good or bad this year the stars Mm -hmm. just move and so but of course knowing these cycles also had you know great advantages in terms of not just economic farming capacity but also military so Mm -hmm. in a lot of battles recorded in history often the understanding of weather patterns, of cycles of weather, often meant that they had a distinct advantage in controlling the environment when it comes to battle. If you knew where the winds were going to blow, it meant that you would position your army so you wouldn't be facing down the wind as you were charging. Or if you plan to use fire, then the wind plays a role in battle as well, right? You don't want to end up setting fire to your own army if you're trying to fighting, fight against the wind. So there used to be a huge benefit for people understanding and learning these things, having a grasp on natural cycles and rhythms and trying to adapt life according to the cycles because there used to be a very good advantage for that. Now it is far more advantageous to ignore those cycles and to set a mechanical one because we want consistency, mm-hmm. we want reliability, we want to have um, profits and margins economically and, and qualitatively and quantitatively predictable. We want to know exactly how much money we're going to make by this time next month, right? We measure things in quarterlies. Right? We need to have quarterly annual reports. Right? We need to think in terms of five-year, ten-year plans, <laughs> which are completely arbitrary. But we like to have a control over these things. We like to pretend we have a control over these things so that we can plan our lives around that. I mean, I think it's often mentioned that the Gregorian calendar 
why all of the numbers are out of whack. So it, October is like the 10th month and people usually notice this. Why is October the 10th month? Why is November the 11th month when it's supposed to be eight and nine is because Julius Caesar decided, oh, I want my name in there. So I'm gonna <laughs> stick Julius and Augustus, his two favorite people in the world, right in the middle of the calendar. Screw your number <laughs> system. <laughs> right? Then I'm going to organize all the dates where we have different numbered amount of days throughout the month. And then all of a sudden, February will have 28, except for every four years, we're going to have the 29. <laughs> it's a ridiculous history. It's kind of a weird little thesis popping up now. You know, you can either follow, you know, the book of nature, the natural patterns, you know, or you can go through the, the created systems of man, right? that are often out of sync with nature and are kind of abominations and are destructive and, and harm the body and harm society, right? And, and in times when people study the book of nature, you know, things flourish and progress. And then when we do our man-made system based on ignorance and fear and, and ego, things fall apart, right? And I guess the current book is written by ego and greed, you know? And uh, things aren't going so well, you know. It's it's pretty insane. It's a pretty insane world, <laughs> as the French existentialists call it. It's a bit absurd, right? It's a bit weird. And of course, on the other hand, you've got people who think they are ascribing to nature. So, for instance, people who still do the calculations, both on the old calendars, neglect the fact that the movements of the stars and the movement of the seasons have changed since 2,500 years ago. Yeah. They're no longer the same cycles. And so yeah. they all do work in cycles, but the cycles update because the distances between the stars have since changed. Right? And so people who hold on to really outdated data and basing calculations on that are actually ridiculous as well. They somehow believe that somehow none of the stars have changed position in 2,500 years that's impossible but also you have people who who attribute certain aspects to nature that don't exist either right so people who genuinely believe the astrological columns written by some random person right who haven't studied any of this stuff but decide that oh yeah no these the move these movements of the stars somehow has some indication of what's going to happen to you right or you know what your personality is and these things are written deliberately vaguely to try and get people to accept them without much reflection and thought and most people you know it's fine if the people don't take them seriously but i've you know known some of my friends have begun dating recently and using dating apps and astrology <laughs> is huge right i didn't realize yeah. how significant this is apparently they won't even give you a chance if you're not astrological. No, you, you cannot successfully mate without a good sign. So it, it, it's quite interesting. I, I, ne I never knew right, that this was that significant. I, I always knew astrology was a thing and it was, used to be you know, something interesting. You read the newspaper or you know, something you don't take seriously. But nowadays, I guess it's because you've got so much choice. You need some way, any way of having any reason to say that someone might be a good one or because reality is complicated and it's messy and you don't know that's the truth right we don't know what a person is going to be like yeah but using these things gives us the appearance of thinking that we might know what their personality is based on that 
and then we and then coupled with a, a bit of confirmation bias oh this person acts a certain way oh there's such a whatever you know scorpio or whatever yeah. right? and then that you know ruins a lot of potential great relationships right a potential a lot of great friendships based on something as arbitrary as that so i think i think the takeaway is to again pay attention to what exactly you're letting decide for you your life's yeah. choices, right? If you're leaving Absolutely. your choices up to everybody else and the, these random column writers who write these um, astrology predictions, then you have very little freedom and control over your own life. You're effectively just saying, yeah, I'm, I don't want to make my own decisions. Make my decisions for me. <laughs> right? Decide for me what is the way to sleep, what is the way to eat, what is the way to dress, what is the way to date. Right? I don't think about it. I don't want to pay attention to it. I just want to let other people decide and that means that you'll end up you know in all possibility not having the best of health right if you mm -hmm. don't recognize the fact that you do need to find something that works for you right not everything is going to work because there's a lot of conflicting advice as well we just don't know for sure if there's like a definitive way to go mm -hmm. even the even the i'm sure that the four chronotypes it's just like a generalization as well. There could yeah. be sort of many in-betweens, people who have very interesting where they might prefer to wake up early, but they're most productive by the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> sort of these I, weird sort of it's, combinations. It's like you say, it's a tool. All this stuff yeah. is a tool. But astrology was built by people actually tracking nature, right? And seeing the cycles. They're probably, you know, in a small community and they could watch how that time of year affected that community. Yeah. Right? And there may have been something to that then. But today, yeah, anyone doing astrology today, there's signs a month off. Right? Yeah. There's a new one called Sidereal. So I'm a Cancer yeah. in the normal one. Yeah. But in Sidereal, I'm actually a Gemini. And <laughs> it's really fun telling people yeah. what they actually because they get so pissed. Yeah. There's, but it's there, just I mean, dogma. It's yeah. dogma. Track There's nobody more pissed off than the astronomers to have had the term <laughs> astrology taken away from them. Because astrology is such a good name, right? But too bad. There's somebody who's already taken it, so the astronomers are going to set, settle for the term astronomy. But I think if you're going to do astrology for real, the circadian rhythm is something you could track. This force mm -hmm. in nature. You could track the movements in your city, the holidays, the movements in your work, the movements yeah. in your family, how the government's moving, the social cycles, those are all big forces that are shaping your life and your personality and how you live, right? And that's in the book of nature. That's in the, the book of your life experience, watching your life experience. You have to set up your own system of correspondence or not, you're just falling into dogma that's yeah. completely out of date, right? Yeah increasingly like with the introduction of ai just shows how much of a cycle we live in that we're living yeah. so wrapped up of the cycles that were very very predictable even mm -hmm. when it comes to our you know day-to-day -day life our needs or wants or desires have become very very predictable because once systems are put in place to tell you what things you should want and desire mm -hmm. then it becomes very very predictable right everybody's mm -hmm. being told that oh yes 
you know, it to show love to you know a, a cher- cherished partner, you must buy a diamond. Right? <laughs> and it's not that hard of a guess to say that. Oh, if you're planning to propose, you're going to buy a diamond. So I'll start advertising, right? Diamonds related stuff to you, right? It's not that difficult. Of, it's nothing to do with mind reading. It's just very t- good targeted statistical guessing. And so people are often amazed at you know their phones advertising something very specific. Well, it's not that hard to guess, right? Because we're not that <laughs> complex of a creature. We're quite, yeah. as you meant, we're quite animalistic. I mean, like cycles and habits and rituals. Um, you know, the the current yeah. astrology may have been one of the systems to make people predictable. Yeah. By telling someone they're this way their <laughs> whole life, they yeah. may take that on, right? And you see, a, it's. People have really adopted these signs into their identity and completely given up, like, oh, I, I can't shape myself, right? It, yeah. You can change that, yeah. right? So that's one, that is a system that is shaping your behavior to act in a certain way, designed yeah. by other people that's yeah. completely out of touch with nature. Yeah. And, it's, and then they're just there to make money. It's not like they're super invested it's in this astrological column. They just do this for a living. It's not... <laughs> So it's not like a, there's some sort of conspiracy. It's just that systems, people wanting to make a living, and that's one of the ways, right? I'm yeah. sure, you know, with advertising as well, right? For them, it's a simple thing. It's as simple as just wanting to make more money, as much money as possible. But mm-hmm. because it's so economically driven, it means that they will also inadvertently start to shape the way people behave, mm-hmm. right? advertising and and the market used to respond to the behavior of people but now they shape the behavior of people Mm -hmm. the price tags and you know money used to be how much something costs used to be a reflection of how much we value things now we value things as much as they cost Mm -hmm. right so it's flipped around and so uh recently read something quite interesting where someone mentioned that if people don't know for themselves and they don't decide for themselves how valuable things are or what's valuable to them, they will make the mistake of letting money decide for them how mm-hmm. much things are worth. And so that's quite a dangerous thing because most of you know the best things in life don't have a price tag attached to them. Yeah. Right? They don't human relationships, those things they don't have like mm-hmm. a definitive cost to help. them. So if you exactly mental health. Yeah. yeah, so if you think that the value of the world is based off purely on economics and the amount of money that's attached to it, then you start to have a very weird and distorted view of how, of what is valuable. You let systems decide for you what's important rather than you think deeply about, okay, what do I think is important to me? Um, the dating app thing, again, like my friends have mentioned, that it's quite... It's almost quite scary in how formulaic it is now. It's like a game. Mm-hmm. There is there are rules, right? And it's uns, it's sort of unspoken, and there are tactics and strategy, and it just feels that that seems to be a very very horrifying way of going about meaningful in general relationships. That there is a tactic, there's a strategy of approach, like chess, right? How scary that is that you're you know, there's an expectation. Oh, these are the things you should be doing, you shouldn't be doing. These are the things that you should be saying, right? There's no mystery to the whole thing anymore there's no a genuine attempt at connecting with other people it's all systematic right it's all Mm -hmm. and that means that these people end up you know you know because it's so systematic that means they could have 10 conversations at once and they're basically saying 
roughly the same thing. <laughs> and it just becomes a game of statistics. It's just like, I'm going to say the same thing a hundred times and I'll see what comes back. <laughs> right? That sounds to me horrifying way to approach sort of that, that sort of thing. So let's let's wrap up because we're we're getting pretty tangential <laughs> right here. We're like, yeah. But I, I can see where it came from, you know. Mm. If you want to be free and mindful, mm. right, which is what it's all about, tracking nature, you know, the book of nature, tracking your life experience, right, critically, is key to your freedom. If you're not mindful, then you're just another automated human flowing through the circuits of society, right? The circuits built for you, the thoughts that were built for you, the horoscopes built for you, and you don't even realize that you think you have free will, right? Yeah, and thank what's you, worse, Dem- you end up being less healthy out of it. <laughs> yeah, you're getting... And then they'll make money off of you when you're sick. Yeah. When you have cancer, when you take all the pills, whatever. They're going to... They found a way to profit off of every system... <laughs> Uh, well anyways yeah thank you Dylan for joining me once again and thank you to everyone who's listening I'm very excited that people are listening and enjoying it (laughs) Um, and please let us know what you want you know we'd be happy to serve you you know and I've also kind of feel bad about as they tell you that you have to ask for things as a podcast. It always feels kind of dumb. Why don't you tell <laughs> us what you want and we'll do that. How about that? Yeah. Anyways, uh, remember to be critically creative. <laughs>